Hello and welcome to the Innovation Book Club, the podcast that makes sense of the big ideas that drive creativity and innovation. We're your hosts, Alex Drago and Weiss Bassard, and we believe that while there's never been a greater need for new ideas, perspectives and solutions, understanding exactly what innovation is and how it works has never been more difficult or confusing. So our purpose for this podcast is clear. In each episode, we take an important text from the innovation field, deconstruct it, and then talk through the key ideas to help you develop a more innovative mindset. Okay, so this week we're looking at the idea of disruptive innovation by Clayton Christensen, and we're looking at a 2015 Harvard Business Review article called What is Disruptive Innovation? So this, is, this article is a 20-year retrospective view of disruption theory, and the, the problem with disruption theories is it's been too successful for its own good right. or rather it's become too familiar for its own good and their point in this article is that we've sort of lost sight of what disruption actually is so in, in 2015 they sat down to write this sort of 20 year 25 year retrospective to say no this is what disruption actually is so far this is what our understanding of what it actually is. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good stuff. Right. So, I mean, briefly about Clayton Christensen. He was born in 1952. He's American. He's born in Salt Lake City. He completes his undergraduate at Brigham Young University uh, in Utah. Then he does an MPhil in econometrics, which I had to look up what it is, which is the application of economic data to understand causal relationships, nice. which makes sense given disruption theory. Right. Uh, and he did that in Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar. He then comes back to America and does an MBA at Harvard. Mm-hmm. He starts as a consultant with the Boston Consultant Group. He then does some work with the U.S. government under the Reagan administration in some sort of um, uh, one-year fellowship. And in 1984, he starts an advanced ceramics company called Ceramics Processing Systems. And they're still around today. They basically make um, a mixture of ceramics and metals, which is used on high-speed trains and so on and so on. Nice. But he does sort of get bored of doing that. He says he's always wanted to be a teacher. So he goes back and he does his DBA at Harvard, which he finishes in 1992. His DBA thesis is on the idea of disruption. Right. And then he starts to work at uh, Harvard University. He, He converts his DBA thesis as a book, and that's called The Innovator's Dilemma. And that's really where the idea of disruption sort of takes off. And so it's kind of towards the end of the the 90s. Um, He died last year. In 2010, he was actually diagnosed with lymphoma. He had a stroke the same year. He sort of carries on teaching, but his his health does sort of decline. And he, he actually dies of leukemia. 
So Damn. quite a sad, yeah. uh, sad end to a, a very successful career, really. It must have been quite a struggle. Yeah, I agree. He did several things. And I liked the, the fact that he also has uh, built a company, the Advanced Ceramics Company. So while he's talking about disruption, he's talking out also uh, from uh, his own experience as uh, as an entrepreneur, basically. Yeah, yeah. That's good. And I think that, well, it's always the same, right? The best researchers, or the, I say that, say that, some of the most important research tends to be tempered by uh, or produced by people who have had really valuable experience. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, it would be an academic theory or academic insights. And I don't know if he would be, or, or other people would be, um able to trust it uh in practice so like yeah. okay he's semi saying something but do you ha- have you ever had some experience in practice in business or something to to while you're talking about this so that's good it's yeah the theory I, yeah I, I i think that's very much the case with him and you know if you look at his his background yeah, so he does some time. He's obviously has a first class academic background. He does some time as a consultant. He does some time in government. Um, I, he serves a mission for his church in in South Korea, I think. So he sees a lot of growth and development in South Korea at that time. As you say, he he then heads up this own company. And you can't help but think that all those experiences combined into the disruption theory. So it wasn't like he just sat down at his desk at Harvard in the first day. Yeah, that's, said, that's true. <laughs> well, so I'm going to come up with a genius piece of work. <laughs> no, I agree with that. Yeah, and, and probably he had a lot of contacts uh, uh, within the biz- in his own business networks where he heard or talked about companies who disrupted each other or other companies uh, disrupted uh, uh, companies from, from uh, within their is network so it's not out of the blue exactly yeah. like you said yeah, i yeah, like yeah, the word yeah. let's make it a word let's define it exactly yeah. yeah i mean the book the innovator's dilemma have you read it well i tried it yeah i tried it but <laughs> i couldn't uh, I wasn't able to read it completely because it's really hard to understand everything and follow a logical. <laughs> it is very yeah. dry. Yeah, I very. mean, I know it's not a DBA thesis, but sometimes I think the thesis might have been easier to understand than the than the book itself. <laughs> but yeah, I suppose you know. I, I guess when he's writing, though, that's the first uh, generation. Or first iteration of sort of tech development, really. You, you know, mean? so so you know, you get the first desktop PTs in the early eighties, right? Right. And when he's doing his thesis in the early nineties, he's generally writing about disk drives, right? Stuff right, like right. that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so there is this growth of of technology, um, and that's probably what's also informing him. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but if you, if you look at some of the lectures on YouTube and stuff, what he's talking about is where growth comes from. He's not really talking about disruption for the sake of disruption. He's not talking about innovation for the sake of innovation. He's trying to understand where growth in business comes from. 
and where he te- where even when he teaches this he, in Harvard, he never taught about oh this is it that the the name of the unit is disruption. It was about how to run a sustainable business. Exactly, and keep growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. With where, uh, yeah, like you said, he's basically talking about the starting point of the growth, which he says exactly. Uh, many people miss or misinterpret uh, what it actually is about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, true. Yeah, and that's the point of this article, really. He, they sort of comment at the beginning that there have been a lot of criticisms of disruption theory. There's a lot of people claiming uh, things to be disruptive when they're not disruptive, according to the theory. Yeah. He feels a lot of the criticisms are misunderstood. And so what he wants to do is then just sort of set the record straight. And that, and that's really what they're trying to do with this article. We're taking it from back in the day to 2015. This is where disruption theory is, full stop. Yes, yeah. So before you prepared for this podcast, did you really understand what disruption was? Well, I assumed it was, uh, I assumed it was like any company or product or service that was innovative yeah. with their features. Like right. uh, there is a new phone in the market. It has is now foldable. That that's disruptive. Uh, a disruptive product, or there is a new uh, taxi service. Uh, that's a disruptive service. I would, I w- in a general sense, I would label anything disruptive if it has some new features or a new functionality to to um, w- towards the same goal as the current company. So yeah, so it's like uh, I thought it was like technology, right? Yeah, exactly. Technology, basically. Yeah, it's innovation with a technological base, a new technological base, a new technological. Yes, yeah, uh, true. Uh, and that sort of turns out not to be <laughs> the case. No, not at all. <laughs> as we as we sort of find out, but the the origins of disruption theory begin with a set of observations that Christensen has that um, good companies were filled with good people, good managers who'd been to the best business schools. They were doing everything right. So they were, you know, managing the company well by their, uh, you know, a set of KPIs. Um, They had, uh, they were leveraging debt in the right way. They were getting, um, stuff off the balance sheet in order to increase profit margins and so on and so on, but they're still failing. Yeah. And the original thesis is, well, why is this actually happening? <laughs> We're doing everything uh, correctly according to the books and yeah. practices, but <laughs> we can't exist in a few years anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and I suppose the wider question is, well, what does this tell us about what business schools were teaching at the time? <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's, well, it's a good point because it shows how business schools are focused on, on doing things right, right. Uh, in the right way, efficiently, effectively, uh, constantly focusing on your own work, doing it in the best way. 
and like and eventually and 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 the combination of uh, and a combination of all those other jobs people are doing in an organization you assume the company will grow and still be around after a few years 10 years 20 years a decade a few decades that's the assumption they teach i think yeah uh, but in practice yeah that's it, completely it, can be completely different yeah it's very much that sort of idea of uh, strategy right where you just sort of this is our advantage and we're going to protect and lock up that advantage either through patents or through access to resources or the technology or whatever and that's it and and the world is a constant and we're just going to carry on it's the holy grail everyone wants yeah <laughs> and we're i going think we what Christensen is is sort of working out is that oh the the world is not sort of working like that anymore. Something has changed, you know. And what is causing that? What's at the heart of that sort of change? That's kind of what he's sort of working out. I think. Yeah. True. Um, sorry, were you going to say something? No, I agree with that exactly what you say he's working out uh, 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 he's explaining basically the change that's happening where companies don't um consider within their uh, within their strategy or operations whatever they say yeah yeah so they begin the article by actually saying this is what we think disruption is now uh, yeah. and so if we just cover that off in like 10 bullet points or something then then that sort of gives us a ground understanding so the first thing to say is disru disruption describes a process whereby a smaller company with fewer resources is able to successfully challenge established incumbent businesses so that's the sort of overview right more specifically it happens as incumbents focuses as incumbents focus on improving their products and services for their most demanding and typically their most profitable customers, they exceed the needs of some segments of customers and ignore the needs of others. So there's right. a sort of separation. Naturally, you're focusing on your profitable customers, basically, and you leave everybody, other less profitable customers behind. And yep. what happens is the entrants come in, they prove disruptive, by successfully targeting those overlooked segments. They gain a foothold by delivering an appropriate set of functionality and usually at a lower price. Right. So they're not competing directly with the incumbent, but they're saying, hey, you've left these people behind and we're going to develop a business for them. And then what happens is that the incumbents, they see, oh, you know, we're doing well now. They chase higher profitability in more demanding segments. So they start to chase other customers. They tend not to respond to the disruptors. So they usually look and go, oh, it's re I'm really glad I don't have to compete in that anymore because, you know, there's not enough money in it really. And then the entrants then come in. They move up market. They deliver a performance um, that the incumbents mainstream customers right. require while at the same time preserving the advantage that drove their early success. So as their own capability develops, so they become more appealing to, to more customers or when mainstream customers start adopting the entrance offerings, 
right. at, at a larger volume, that's when the disruption occurs because the incumbent cannot compete anymore. Yeah. So basically, uh, if we take Apple as an example company, you um, disruption is basically if a startup focuses on the customers where the non-customers of Apple, yeah, whom are not are buying Apple products, and uh, first of all, focus on them, trying to make them customers for their uh, Apple alternative. And then when they win their market, they will go towards the market of Apple and try to convince the Apple customers to buy their product. And uh, Apple can be disrupted uh, in this way if with their early success, like like Christensen described, uh, of the startup. So first of all, they are going to adopt all those non-customers and eventually... Uh, the second step is the cu- the current customers of Apple, and in this way, Apple can be disrupted, basically, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, assuming yeah. Apple doesn't respond. Exactly, Apple. Yeah, yeah exactly, and uh, yes, exactly. So Apple uh, won't start responding to the startup and ignores it because it says, like, no, we have the best product, best service. We are not going to focus on those non-customers because we assume we will exist eventually in 50 or 100 years still. Yeah, and that's why Apple obviously um, has their sort of walled garden, right? Only Apple makes stuff for Apple in terms of the hardware. Yeah, more and more. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, and that is part of that that sort of protection. Um, exactly. The the point that Christensen is making in his original theory is that as technology accelerates, it it facilitates the potential for more disruption because technology becomes more accessible, which means that you can apply it in more different ways, which means that you can then potentially disrupt. There are obviously a lot of other factors, but it's important that... Christensen is writing this in the 90s when technology is now becoming increasingly accessible. Ah, uh, yes, I see. So basically, the more technology becomes accessible for everyone, for more people. Yeah. And I, uh, there is a company who has used um, five years of technology in their to, into their product. And after five years, more technology will be invented. That means, And it's more accessible. So that means that that company, if they don't want to be disrupted, they should uh, also consider that one. And if they don't consider that one, that means that some other startup can use that as a disruptive <laughs> to yeah, disrupt their exactly. company. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So technology is a very important part of it, yeah. but it's also wrapped up in the business model and the value proposition and all that sort of stuff. The change in technology, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the technology actually facilitates those other changes i mean it's a venn diagram they all overlap but exactly um, yeah you know that that's that's sort of what he's he's sort of focusing on uh it, during the writing of his dba and it's no coincidence that it happens during the 90s when you are starting to get that increased accessibility of of, of new technology yeah. yeah of new technology yeah becoming more and more powerful yeah that's true yeah so according to the theory, disruptive innovations are made possible because they get started in two types of markets that the incumbents overlook, right? So it's it's what are called low-end footholds. 
So what happens is the disruptor comes in and says, I'm just going to do something that's good enough for these low-end customers. And then over time, they develop and so on and so on and so on, right? That's what they call the low-end footholds. And then there is also new market footholds. And this is where disruptors, they take the technology, whatever it is, and they go, actually, there's a new market we can actually create with that technology when no market had previously existed before. So they're turning non-consumers into consumers. So they talk about Xerox copiers, for example. So the first Xerox copiers were just these enormous sort of things. They were only, the only people that could afford them, you know, probably were large scale government or um, large corporations. Right. Right. And um, everyone else had to do with either carbon paper or these mimeograph machines, right? Where you had to run it in a, yeah, almost in a press as it were, and it, was purple and it came out all of you. I mean, I remember them vaguely as a school child. Right. But as technology improved, the copiers got smaller because the technology got cheaper and that created a new market because new uh, other customers could actually then afford to buy um, copiers. Right. So every little business by the end of the 90s or whatever could have their own photocopier. So basically, did uh, the Xerox? What you're saying is that the Xerox existed within a particular market. They had specific customers. They had a, uh, and and so the photocopier eventually came for created a whole new market for the non-consumers of the Xerox customers. Yeah, of yeah. the Xerox products. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of Apple, if we would say Apple is in mobile phone business or the computer business. And eventually if a startup wants to disrupt them, I would understand if they go towards the uh, low end footholds. So basically people who can't afford or don't use Apple, try to make a solution for them, a cheaper solution for them or the good enough products for them uh, as an Apple alternative. But a new market footholds to disrupt Apple, how would that look like? (laughs) Well, <laughs> I guess that's the, the sixty-four thousand dollar question, right? Yeah. I mean, the the we're we're approaching a point where it doesn't matter what technology you have. That is true. You know, so I use a Mac, you use a PC, right? We both use Android phones, but it doesn't matter because we record and distribute this uh, podcast on the internet, which can be accessed by any of those. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So that's why Apple are shifting also towards services, right? Right, 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 right. So the new market, yeah. So providing the same services of Apple through a whole new platform maybe i don't know that's yeah that's so so the the technology just becomes the entrance into the particular range of services that apple offer yeah exactly exactly that's an interesting t- question to think about what's the new market of apple <laughs> but that's the you know that's the is that disruptive i don't know it's probably just competing i mean like the the one that was announced in the last couple of weeks is uh and it's not disruptive, but it's it's Microsoft uh, now going to do Windows 365, right? Right. 
yeah. which is like everything's done on the cloud now anyway, so let's just put the operating system on the cloud. <laughs> so, yeah. Which has learned the lesson from Chrome OS, right? You know, that you get on Chromebooks. That's also in the cloud? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, okay, the stuff installed on your computer, but essentially you're running yeah, a, 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 an operating system based on Chrome of which the processing is done on the internet. Right, Chrome OS, yes. Yeah. I, I was I, I confused that with uh, with Apple, uh, uh, the Mac OS. Yeah, yeah, Chrome yeah. OS, yes, exactly. That's also completely in the cloud. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So the point is you don't have to, I mean, <laughs> Windows don't have to distribute, right? They don't have to distribute Windows in the same way. It doesn't have to be installed on the machine in the Nowhere. same way. Nowhere, yeah, it doesn't it matter what device. It just updates all the time. Yeah. Because all the services we're using are in the cloud. That's an interesting one. Yeah, that's true. You know, but that's, I mean, that's getting off the point. <laughs> yeah, <disruption>. that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, so low end footholds are new market footholds to yeah. disrupt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, are there any parts of the, of the um, theory that resonate with you? Well, um, the, the low end footholds. Yeah. Because uh, in my experience, when I had my own business uh, in uh, the telecom, uh, where I sold uh, sold uh, phone accessories uh, and helped uh, low uh, and helped local uh, phone shops to to grow, I always would question myself, like, uh, okay, what are the um, non-consumers? How can we make the non-consumers consumers? Right. Uh, because the majority of time, I remember people would go to a local phone shop. And ask questions about their um, uh, about their phones, and if the if the shop didn't have the solution, they would just say, "No, we don't have the solution." Right. Sorry, so they wouldn't provide a service if they w didn't have the service. So eventually, I was always uh, searching and trying to find how to make them uh, consumers for the local shops, and eventually make my wholesale grow <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah something that's good enough for exactly them. yeah yeah exactly that was also the uh, the question which i which kept me always busy so that resonates with me yeah yeah how that's about you about. well i think for me there's a couple of things one is that it's it's directly related to the technology right and the application of technology so right. the, the technology allows you either to do a low-end foothold or to right. take that technology and apply it in a new place and it's the new market sort of foothold, you know. Um, I mean, as you know, the uh, I've done a lot of work in museums, right? And right. trying to get people to understand either the concept of just do something good enough for these group of people who've never been to a museum before. Right. Or to introduce something that changes the experience in some way is very, very difficult because um, the, I guess, in terms of disruption theory, the customer base is the middle class, upper middle class, right? Conservative types, right? Right. And Within the current who, market. Yeah, that's who you're always targeting at. Yeah. And you're saying like the new market, we, should, uh, we can create a new market to attract the non-consumers, the non-visitors. Yeah. yeah. 
But the biggest barrier was not the technology, was actually what was going on in people's heads. Biggest barriers was the people in the current market. Yeah. Or, or the, the leadership who go, no, because what museums do is they serve this market. And everything else we just bolt on on the outside if we have a bit of budget. Yeah, that's definitely challenging. But if you uh, succeed in it, then you definitely have a new market uh, next to the current market. Yeah. For all those non-visitors. <laughs> well, it's yeah, exactly. And that's the challenge, right? I mean, it's a challenge for all businesses. That's the... <laughs> <laughs> the same discussions going on oh we should actually chase these customers no there's no money in it it's not worth it yeah exactly well it's actually i don't know what actually it's a holy grail in my opinion yeah like everyone who doesn't choose you it's an opportunity to for you it's a growth opportunity basically yeah, yeah that's a good way to think of it yeah <laughs> that's funny so yeah. they use the example of uber Right. So if you think about it, in 2015, we were all mesmerized by Uber's growth. Yeah. They had no um, assets to speak of. You know, there was no fleet of cabs or, no. you know, nothing like that. But they'd grown into this enormous taxi company. Bayamoth, <laughs> yeah. Um, Not a taxi. Yeah. And, and people were saying, oh, it's so disruptive and blah, 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 blah. So they use that as an example, and they say that Uber, um, yeah, it's transforming the taxi business, but it's not necessarily disrupting it. So Uber didn't start from a low-end foothold mm -hmm. or from the new market entrant. Yeah. So what it actually did was that it targeted at the start the top end of the market right, with limousines. True, yeah. And then when that didn't work, they went down market and targeted existing consumers. Right. Which seems obvious now, right? Yeah. Who has the need of a limousine, right, on a daily basis? Yeah. <laughs> Even monthly basis, weekly basis. <laughs> <laughs> Almost no one. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Uber's customers are the people who are already using taxis. It, exactly. it wasn't. It wasn't that the existing taxi companies had actually moved upstream, right up the market. Yeah, and that left the gap. And there's all these people who don't have taxis. <laughs> We're going to fill it. That would have been a disruptive Uber model. Yeah, exactly. That wasn't the case. Yeah, yeah. But um, that's you know that's not what Uber did. They they <laughs> they started the top. When that didn't work, they moved down. Um, you know, rather than the other way around. Um, so, you know, I, and we talk about Uber being disruptive, but I've never heard of any taxi business going bust. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, I've, I've when have you ever read that some taxi company's gone bust? Oh, because of a disru because disruptive, disruptive startup. Because they've been disrupted yeah, by Uber. No, <laughs> no never. <laughs> never. So if anything the market is bigger i only heard um complaints from right. current taxi uh, owners and a lot of complaints international complaints about all those taxi companies or complaints uh, why why uber exists they're taking their customers but i never read i agree with you i remember now i never read that they would say like we have gone bust because of uber <laughs> yeah <laughs> they just so, still work <laughs> yeah did you think uber was disruptive then before 
before you no. read this article. Well, yes, 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 yeah. yes. I before that I thought exactly like, like you explained. I read everywhere like this is the only company with the with the biggest taxi company without a taxi. Right. Thought, the first thing I thought this is a disruptive company. Yeah. yeah and then yeah. when I went into reading more about Uber and installed the app, and I thought, oh, I can order where wherever I'm standing in a, a taxi without calling them. And it would exactly come and uh, come and pick me up at that point. I thought definitely uh, th- this is a disruptive company. Yeah, but no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not the case. <laughs> that's not the case at all. Yeah, right. So the authors say that disruptive innovations don't catch on with mainstream customers until quality catches up to their standards. Otherwise, there's no basis for growth. Right. You're yeah. just stuck with the low-end customer who are prepared to pay lower for a lower-quality service. For good enough products, and the good enough yeah. products will stay good enough. Yeah, exactly, just for that market. You have to make it good enough for a different market. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they then talk about two types of innovation, so sustaining innovations and disruptive innovations. Right. And so they talk about sustaining innovations are the, those things that make existing things better. So like Gillette's razor blades, for example. Yeah. Like it used to, one blade was enough and then it was two and then it was three and then I had to have (laughs) swivel head and then I had to have four and then it was battery powered and then it rotated by 360 degrees and now it's five blades. Uh, Are we actually (laughs) cleaner shaving than we were before? Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I even remember the, uh, there was a lot of, uh, joking around about the sustaining innovation example of youtube how they show ads first they had one ad showing before playing a video if you didn't have a subscription and after i don't know a few years they decided to go towards the second uh, ad adding a second ads before some videos (laughs) now you see is that is that disruptive is that new no (laughs) well it's because they can't make their i don't know imagine I mean, what's the incremental growth that YouTube has to have in terms of storage in order to maintain YouTube? Well, that's a good question. I mean, that's the business model, right? Yeah. Well, that they needed the second ad before that. <laughs> <laughs> to pay for the extra storage, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's funny anyway so the, that's the sort of sustaining innovations and then disruptive innovations are those that are initially considered inferior by the incumbent so those customers of the incumbent they don't make the switch because the product is cheaper mm. they make the switch because the quality is better right that's ultimately what drives them Pound for pound, you're paying the same thing, but what you're getting in return is better than what the incumbent could actually provide. So it's improved the sustaining innovations is improving the current uh, job you're delivering. Yeah, and disruptive innovation is is inferior that you're improving. You're improving the inferior product until it gets to a point where the incumbent's customers are willing to buy it. Yeah, because the right. quality has improved. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And technology allows you to do that, right? Yes, that's true. It yeah. allows you to improve the quality or efficiency or whatever to make that viable. 
Exactly. Yeah. So the point they make about Uber is that it's built on sustaining innovations. So the service quality is pretty much the same. In some cases, it was better because actually the drivers would, you know, make an effort in because they were going to get reviewed, which is never what you had from a taxi driver, right? Right. Yeah. So they would keep it cleaner. They would provide perks, bottle of water, you know, mint, whatever it might be. Prices are competitive or even lower because they don't employ their drivers. Yeah. They're just <laughs> outsourcing labor, right? Yeah. And that's the um e and even despite that, Uber have never been able to turn a profit, right? Right. So, <laughs> you know, is that good or bad? I don't know. It depends on which side of the political spectrum you actually fall. But that's why the prices were sort of lower. And they become more uh, convenient because the GPS technology and the smartphone integration means finding people is easier. Whereas back in the day, you had to ring somebody up and say, what's your address? Oh, come and pick me from this address. Or there's a dedicated place where you can get a taxi. It's called the taxi rank. Yeah, exactly. So they use technology to improve the taxi service yeah so uber is sustaining innovation yeah not a disruptive innovation and in fact what's happened is that you know most large taxi companies have done exactly the same thing the job which is being done in a taxi uh, business is basically the, ta the taxi service you're ordering taxi you have to go from a to b and yeah. what they did is they use technology to do the same job but differently with more convenience yeah, exactly. It was <laughs> yeah. a sustaining innovation, right? When I was working in London for this company, we, we would actually have to transfer quite a lot of stuff between sites. Right. And we would just book a taxi company to do it. And it was done on an app or it was done on the internet. And it was this is before Uber. It was all done in the same way. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know... Which might help us to explain a bit later on why Uber can't turn a profit, right? But yeah, anyway, that's true. Yeah. We'll get to that. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, so given the differences between the two, sustaining and disruptive innovation, then which is more common? Sustaining, obviously. Yeah, obviously. As know. a company, you build a startup, you you grow, you get so much, so many, so much funding from uh, investors, millions and millions, and so eventually you would assume this product is going is superior is the holy grail and therefore we keep improving it yeah and yeah that's the common thing yeah i mean you know gillette's business model was invented like 100 years ago right when the technology first allowed you to have disposable blades they yeah, haven't reinvented the idea of shaving every year since but they've certainly changed their products every year yeah that's true and in terms of disruptive innovation, I would agree that it's, I would understand that it's not easy to think about that in within a company. Yeah. Because in, from the perspective of a taxi uh, industry, I would question like, how would you disrupt that with flying taxis? Yeah. It's, well, exactly. That could be the superior, yeah. um, superior product or service uh, for the taxi service. Within yeah. the taxi service business, yeah, to I mean, fly it is, from it, point A to B within yeah. ten minutes instead of an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is like flying 
or the Hyperloop. Hyperloop, yes, exactly. You know, or, or something like that, you know. That would create a completely new market with non-consumers, I would think, because because I would understand that people would, won't choose for a taxi, like it's an hour, hour drive. I would rather go, I don't know, with the bike, it's 10 minutes. Yeah. And then eventually, guys, now you can order uh, the next uh, Uber, I don't know, the Uber, uh, Fly Uber or something. And they, if you order it, the same price, and it's in 10 minutes, so you don't have to rush it anymore. Or you, yeah. Yeah. I mean, which shows you why, you know, disruptive innovation is so hard. Yeah, definitely. You know, because you are making, it's not just a technological breakthrough, right? It's a conceptual breakthrough. Completely. It's, an, it's a yeah. cognitive change in the way that you're delivering that business. And you have to eventually convince the gun consumers yeah. of the new superior service you have. So that's yeah. is going probably cost you a lot of money, which <laughs> you have to have set aside just to experiment with it. Yeah, and that exactly. could be really scary for yeah, 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 <laughs> a lot yeah, of companies. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> which, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, which leads on to the next question that they ask is well, does it matter if it's disruptive or not? That's a good and, question. And, you know, they say, well, yes, it is. So if you're the incumbent and you see a competitor on the periphery of your sort of market right. and you can identify whether it's on a disruptive trajectory or not, you say, actually, they're using this technology in a totally different way. They're bypassing this. They can do it much more quickly, much more cheaply, whatever. Right. You can decide to respond, Right. Yeah, but if you just go, well, they're just competing on price for a low quality, and actually, I don't know how they're doing that, but they're doing that. They're doing exactly the same as we are. Well, you know, you probably don't have to take it quite so seriously. Yeah, that's true. So when you think back around Uber, right? You know, most taxi companies have not gone, oh. <laughs> the business is over. We need to close our doors, right? They've just adopted exactly the same approaches. They copied uh, within their innovation or within their service what Uber did. Yeah, they sent to all those taxi drivers they have. Uh, they hired uh, phones, paid right, the yeah. IT company <laughs> to build an app, yeah. and done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, which you know, which tells you what, <laughs> why Uber can't turn a profit, right? <laughs> because they're not on a disruptive trajectory. No, not at all. Well, I don't know about that. Maybe it's scale some... they're going for. Yeah, I I agree with that. If we look at it, but I'm curious how the uh, leadership of Uber is looking towards their company. Do they really believe that they are disruptive? Well, that that was the one that was the underlying issue around when they changed their CEO, right? Right, 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 right. Because the guy Travis can't remember his name. Yeah, Scott or something. No, not Travis Scott. That's a singer. <laughs> <laughs> Corral, yeah. chick, Corral, chick, something like that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Right. He was just all about do it as quickly as possible, break as many things as you possibly can. In order to achieve growth. In order to achieve growth. Right. But they've done that, and then they realized it's like... Oh, Doesn't work. 
custom content a profit, right? And they're only, only likely to turn a massive profit once driverless cars are common because the, the mass bulk of what you're uh, paying yeah. for is, is the driver fees, right? So you have to have a different technological solution that's good enough in order to meet the needs, and then you have to grow from that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I would understand. Yeah, I would agree to that. I would assume that they would indeed gain uh, have some profits if they can lower their lower their costs of yeah uh, hiring basically the outsourcing cost, lowering the yeah. outsourcing cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. So. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, so it matters. It does matter if it's disruptive enough. But but you have to understand what disruption is, right? <laughs> That's the, to be yeah. able to do that. Otherwise, you're just throwing good money after bad. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, I would I would I would imagine if if I would would be in a leadership of a company, I would definitely keep an eye on uh, startups who would try to disrupt uh, my company yeah. and if i would see that they have new technology new ways to provide a service or whatever it is i would look if it's sustaining or it's really disruptive if it's sustaining i would copy it thank right. you very much for your research yeah, yeah, for a few course. years well Bye -bye. you would only <laughs> yeah and and if it's really disruptive I would even uh, look it up and try to understand it to go toward the markets itself or buy the company itself. Yeah. Like I would buy you, come work with me, you get a six-figure salary, done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the good examples of that is um, uh, Intel, right? So the story is that obviously Intel do microchips, right? Drive computers. They invented the Celeron chip. Right in order to stave off disruption. Right. So uh, Intel were obviously pushing up market, right. the i5, the i7, the i9, right? Right. And in so doing, they were leaving the lower market behind. Yeah. So they had met with Clayton Christensen, and he explained, that well, this is how the theory works. And they were like, ah, we get it now. We need to create a chip for that bottom end of the market in order to stop people coming in and disrupt ours and yeah. disrupting us. And that has worked, but actually what's happened is the other stuff. So people are taking chips that were originally used in phones that are right. now becoming more powerful and are now being used to drive, uh, to power computers. Right. So they're actually getting disrupted in that way. Well, not the from the low-end foothold, from the new market. Well, the fact that they went to Clayton Christensen and talked about disruption and how they could avoid that—that's that's—I don't think many companies would do that. No, of course not. That's really nice to see that it's even uh, that people did that. And of course, new technology, new markets, all is always possible because there is a there is a limit on how much you can monitor and how much you can see and buy or invest in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the 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 issue with Intel, right, is that Apple actually went to them and said, "We want a chip that will power the phones." 
Right. And Intel said, no, we're not interested. And now they are doing it themselves. <laughs> and now they're doing it themselves, yeah. <laughs> so they came up with their own architecture, and now they've expanded that architecture right for their, for their own chips, and those M1 yeah, chips. That was, I don't know if that was a good decision from Intel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so some, that's, that's, that's funny, because if I were to be in the leadership of Intel and you would be in the leadership of Apple, you would come to me and say, hey, I need you to build me some microchips for my phones and so on and so on. I would see that I would, first of all, before I would talk to you, do some due diligence about who you are, how much money you have, yeah, etc. Yeah, yeah. If I would see that you have hundreds of billions of dollars, yeah. I would think, let's hook this up. Let's hook this uh, company within my uh, company well, because I don't want to uh, have the risk that he would be doing it himself <laughs> well there's a certain amount it's not that we don't can't develop technological solutions right it's quite clear that we can develop a technological solution for almost anything given enough True. time and resources right exactly it's the hubris in intel to say yeah we can't we can't think beyond a couple of years <laughs> we can't see where the smartphone market is going we're not interested yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's funny. So, yeah, well, there you go. So, I mean, it does sort of, I mean, the question, you know, if you're the CEO, does it matter if it's disruptive or not? Well, we've just talked that through, right? Yeah, definitely. The role of the CEO has to be looking beyond the immediate landscape and and seeing trying to see beyond that trying to imagine scenarios beyond that in only order if to it's see important. where disruption could come from oh only if sustaining the business is important for them yeah and yeah. only if they understand and believe in the fact that they can be um disrupted and if it's important to be around in 50 years yes i would definitely say that it's important yeah yeah I mean, otherwise if you believe see. sorry well, I was going to say it's going to, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Intel. Because now that Apple have developed their own solution, other people will develop their own solutions, right? Yeah, that's true. They will just use more powerful, you know, phone chips, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So they they then say there's four main points that they need to make about disruptive innovation in the article, right? So disruption as a process is the first one. Right. It's not like you, uh, on day one, you're like, I've got this disruptive idea, therefore it's disruption. Actually, <laughs> disruption is that process where you go from the idea through to the implementation over time. Right. So that's why... Um, IBM, for example, wasn't disrupted the first day that the microcomputer came out, right? Right. <laughs> they were still building mainframes for a long time after that. Yeah. But over time, what happened was that people went, oh, we don't really need mainframes anymore. We can use these, you know, microcomputers or we can use these desktop computers or whatever. So disruption is a is a process you're managing a process and that process involves starting with a small scale experiment to see if it works and then moving on you know from that so that you're able to move up the market it's basically not a switch absolutely 
It's and, not and, as, yeah. and I suppose going along with that, there's no there's no, you know, established time frame, there's no established no. steps. It's dynamic, right? Yeah, completely. You, you can have a long term view, but well, you know, what, what, you know, we can't read the future, right? No, completely. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to see, you know, um, OnePlus, the phone right. manufacturer. Yeah. yeah. They started off on a, on a disruptive trajectory. So they produced actually quite high quality yeah. phones at a lower price. But actually with every generation of the phone, they their price went up. So they yeah, were trying sure. to they were trying to steal the high end market, right? And yeah. now they're producing lo- their own low end phones again. Again, yeah, I haven't seen that. Oh, okay. so they do the OnePlus Nord, which is oh, like okay. <laughs> the lowest spec OnePlus phone. So, not only did they fail to disrupt Samsung and Apple, right? Right. They're now struggling to compete with the lower-end manufacturers so that they're now competing with themselves. Yeah, I remember when OnePlus started, uh, started they, they indeed had an inferior product for a super low price. So all yeah. those non- non-consumers were excited. Yeah. Even I. I even bought uh, one of the first OnePlus. Yeah. And eventually I liked it and the second and the third uh, phone came out and it was still inferior product with a super low price and yeah. I always I remember comparing the technology of OnePlus with Apple and uh, and Samsung to understand if whether they're really inferior and still I liked it and bought it but now when I I mean a year ago a few years ago I I looked to OnePlus and I saw that their inferior product became the same price <laughs> yeah, as exactly. apple and something then i was yeah then i was i decided not to buy any more oneplus yeah. because it's doing the same job and the same with the same price why <laughs> yeah 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 they're now indeed in the same market as apple and something trying to compete and stay alive <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i think they've just rejoined with oppo right again so clearly oh, things wow. aren't working probably yeah. the way they anticipated it I mean, the other one is is uh, the old uh, blockbuster Netflix uh, right. story, right? So, so they had very different value propositions. You know, blockbuster was like, "What should we watch tonight?" Right. Like, let's go down to the movie store and let's pick something off the shelf, right? So it's typically new releases, right? They have loads of new releases and a few other bits and bobs. Whereas Netflix, because it was posted. You that you couldn't compete, right? It's just like, what do we want to do a week on Friday? Oh, that new movie's coming out. <laughs> I better pre-order it now so that it arrives in time. Yeah. So they they had a much broader range, so it became for movie buffs, uh, people who really enjoyed watching a wide range of movies. And of course, over time, the technology shift was it allowed you to stream. Yeah, which meant that Netflix could then stream new releases. Yeah, whereas Blockbuster was still locked into the same business model. Yeah, that's true. That's an interesting one, indeed. Blockbuster still thinking about how their products or their services was the holy grail service for watching movies while netflix come along and use the technology to improve 
or even could we say that it's sustaining or disruptive? Well, the business model became disruptive, right? Because the uh, it was all you can eat, right? You can have as many as you yeah, want for a certain amount true. of price, you know. That's definitely disruptive because all those non-consumers, many non-consumers became consumers. Yeah. yeah. And also with Blockbuster, it wasn't that they were like, we're just ignoring, you know, Netflix. They they did actually uh, have plans to do a streaming service, but they also had activist investors who wanted the biggest return possible. <laughs> and there was a boardroom battle. They doubled wow. down on the stores and then were locked into that. Right. Yeah. Wow. So Netflix's success, not taking anything away from them, but, uh, you know, at some point it was Blockbuster's own fault because of the decisions that they were made. Uh, uh, Equally, Netflix, you have to give them credit that they were flexible enough to change with the times, right? That's definitely true. Yeah. They used the technology um, uh, right on time. Yeah. Technology was available. They they thought about it and improved the process of uh, instead of sending the DVDs directly, (laughs) viewing the movies. Yeah. Basically. I mean, I think even now Netflix do still post stuff, don't they? There are like places in America where basically your broadband just can't cope with it. Yeah, that's true. Post, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, we're getting off the point, but you know, the strengths and weaknesses of disruption as a process. It's fun to talk about, oh, this is disruptive and that's disruptive, but you know, what are the the relative strengths and weaknesses of talking about disruption as a process? As a process, I mean, the 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 well, the weakness or the downside of it is that it's still an experiment. Yeah. It's still an experiment. There's no certainty. And the strength of course is the, is the, (laughs) is the potential or the possibility or the opportunity basically that you have to eventually find some, find the right product or service. I think, I don't know. What do you think? I guess the strength and weakness is a bit the same, right? Because it's a process, you have to adapt. And that can, that involves difficult decisions about pivoting and so on and so on, right? Where are right. you investing things? Who are your customers and so on and so on, right? Right. Which is a strength, right? We want to be able to adapt. <laughs> the weakness is it's actually quite hard work to adapt. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's it, it it certainly makes disruption harder to understand when you're in it. Yeah. It's easy to document it after the fact. That is true. Yeah, like with Netflix, it was like, well, obviously they were on a disruptive trajectory, and it was ba- they were bound to fail. Sorry, bound to succeed, and Blockbuster were bound to fail. Well, that's not how life is, right? But I don't know if the leadership or the company itself of Netflix would believe or thought that they were that they were in a uh, disruptive process. I don't know. Well, they 
no, they, they may not have recognized it as disruption, but what they, they will have recognized is that the technology shift has happened and that creates an opportunity. Yeah, exactly. And they have to act in order to take advantage of that opportunity. They recognize it probably as an innovation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is the next natural step for us. Exactly. And it became disruptive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we use that result. just to analyze and understand, right? Exactly. But there's probably very few people who sit down with a notebook and go, <laughs> number one idea for disruptive innovation <laughs> exactly. in X sector, right? Yeah. <laughs> we, just don't, we just don't work like that. Yeah, that's true. But it's, I mean, it's it's hard, right? I think disruption is hard work. And that's the, you know, it has strengths. It has weaknesses. The strength is you can adapt and change. The weakness is it's, it's hard work to disrupt an incumbent, right? Because the incumbent's going to fight back. Yeah, definitely. The second thing they point out is that disruptors, they typically build different business models that are very different from those of incumbents. Right. And they have to do that. You can't compete on the same products that creates the same value at the same price. You're copying it otherwise, yeah. Yeah. So you, you have to have some way to bring together your resources to, to offer that particular value proposition. So the uh, in um, Netflix, for example, they their business model is different from Blockbuster, right? And Blockbuster is like you go and you rent the movie and it costs however much it costs, right? And you have it for a day or two. Yeah. Well, Netflix couldn't do that. They had to have a different business model because it represented a different value proposition. Yeah, for a monthly payment, you get access to a lot of movies and series. Many series are their own series, but the movies... It means that within their business model, their relationship with their suppliers are different. Yeah. Their producers, whatever it is. Yeah. 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 I mean, the other one is the iPhone, right? So when the iPhone started, it was just like a phone, right? You just went and bought the phone and you stuck your SIM in it. And there was no app store. No, it was a nice touch screen. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and so the the... Innovation comes when the app store is added, right? But that means it's a different business model. Completely, yeah. So It's complementary, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you don't have any choice, really. I mean, no. that's why. <laughs> I guess the disruptors recognize that they are creating a different value proposition. It's not the same value proposition at a lower quality level. It's actually a different value proposition. Yeah, exactly. Which can include the value, current value proposition of, for example, the current market. Right. But, it, but it's an improved or an added value proposition which already says, we are doing that, Yeah. but we're doing these and these and these things also. Yeah. So that's, that value you're also gaining. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. What we don't recognize as such is that a different business model allows you to express a different value proposition. So the one I'm thinking of, for example, it's not disruptive, but it's a very good example. So Hilti are a, a power tool manufacturer. 
Right. So drills and all that sort of stuff, you know, used for construction work. Right. And they had a business model like everybody else. And it was like, well, we create tools and we sell them. How much do you want? We can compete on price and da 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 da. And when they went out to people and said, what do you actually want? The construction companies were like, well, we're not that, you know, one tool is the same as another tool, right? What right. what we want is to have the right tool available at the right time. Right. So they evolved their business model where they have deals with construction companies. The construction companies tell them in advance, we need X number of this tool on this date for this length of time. Oh, that's that's really nice. Yeah. So it means that you don't have a bunch of workmen or work women you know, waiting around for the tools. They're not doing anything. Well, we can't start until somebody tills up and delivers the tools. Right. You know, for the con for the construction company, it's like, well, we have a line on our budget for tool hire. It doesn't matter if we buy them or rent them. What we really want, the value, is I need 10 drills on this day. I need five of this on that day. I need 12 of those on the, the day after. And I need them for different lengths. And Hilti now offer this service where it's like, well, we'll do that. Let's talk about how many you need. Let's come up with a price. That's a new business model. Yeah. Improved significantly the job to be done. That was actually what the, manufacturer, what the construction companies needed, basically. Yeah. They had the drills already, and they were excited maybe about some future, extra features of the drills of that company. But eventually they said, we actually don't need drills we actually need drills on the right time <laughs> yeah. what's costing them more exactly is, is the downtime more than the speed of an incremental improvement by a drill right exactly that's really a nice example again it comes comes down to the value proposition right i mean it's and eventually the result is a new business model yeah yeah, exactly what you say. Yeah, they asked that they recognized it, uh, the actual job to be done, basically the, that the construction company had, and they responded to that, and eventually it led to a new price agreements, new whatever it is, relationships. Yeah. All right. The third point they make is that some disruptive innovations succeed and some don't. I mean, most don't, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean. You know, it's not going to work because it's disruptive, you know. Um, and at the same time, very few innovations that, that succeed are disruptive innovations. That's true. Yeah, so they say the theory of disruption is not about how to win, but it explains how the process of winning takes place against the odds. And that's why it's important. You're never going to win going head-to-head -head with the incumbent. No. You have to find another way to do that. And disruptive innovation, the theory helps you to understand how that happens. Obviously, that can happen in a million different ways, and there's many different factors that contribute to that. Yeah, that's true. But the, the wider point they're making is that if we call every business success a disruption, then companies that succeed and rise to the top in different ways become seen as a source of insight that somehow what they're doing is is the way you win and then you actually lose sight of what disruption is which is exactly what we've talked about about uber 
Yeah, that's a big risk for a lot of companies. We get really excited about ideas and technology. We don't really get excited about business models and value propositions, right? But actually, that's where it's won and lost. Or disruptive startups in your environment. Yeah. I don't want to be disrespectful towards anybody who's starting a business, right? Right. When you hear many of the startup pitches and things like that, they may claim to be disruptive, but actually when you pull them apart, they're not at all. And that's why they fail. Well, I would understand that they would improve the current value proposition of a business, but I, but it's 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 still difficult to to come up with a disruptive idea based on these these uh, criteria that Christensen has outlined here. Yeah, like it's it how it's a completely new way of thinking about uh, the non-consumers who are not customers of the current market. How what product or service good enough can you create? Um, for them to to disrupt something and you it's a process which we talked before that and you will start thinking about the process first i'm going to do this to to gain some momentum and afterwards i'm going to disrupt that market through making a superior product at the second step that's that's really difficult to 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 think about and which is why disruptive innovation is so rare yeah, exactly. Yeah. Rare both in the within the companies as within the startup environment where people try to create this new startup. Yeah. And yeah. they mainly focus like we have a new technology, a new AI or a new AR, uh, whatever it is, new glasses where people could see more things and therefore we are disruptive. Yeah. We have we should build a company. And eventually they build a company and say, Oh, why do we feel this <laughs> is disruptive? Yeah. We have non no consumers. We are providing you, I don't know. Google Google or YouTube on the glasses. Why don't you like it? This is the best technology. Yeah, no, we just don't like it to have a video in my face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's exactly there's so many different factors, right? Internal, you know, sector-wide, wider, external, right? And, and, and how many, I read something uh, uh, this week, is that there's been a huge number of, new businesses opened during the pandemic right because there's a lot of people sitting at home going <laughs> what am i supposed to do now right so so they they're basically selling online stuff amazon stores all that kind of stuff right wow which they can manage from their from their um the armchair but gives you insight into the factors that inform the development of new ideas yeah that's true if you start a business you will gain some insights in the environment customers uh, supplies whatever it is and eventually gives you the opportunity to think about potential disruption but i mean many to be honest i don't know if many businesses are going to start to disrupt or to innovate or they just want to earn some money to to live their comfortable life. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the example they sort of give about this is uh, Uber and Apple, right? So they both use a sort of technological solution, but whereas Apple's approach is an app store, which empowers developers, which gives birth to new uh, ideas and innovations, new applications. 
right. Uber combined theirs in such a way that it they just brought together a bunch of sustaining innovations. It it sort of starts and ends with Uber, right? Right. The fourth point they make is disrupt or be disrupted is not a helpful mantra. <laughs> so they say, well, if your business is not being disrupted and you're still profitable, then leave it as it is, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> so they say what you should do is like keep a lookout. You know, focus on the core stuff that makes you money. Yeah. Incrementally improve that. That's where your money's come from. Keep a lookout. If there's disruptive innovations coming, then you need to address them. Otherwise, carry on, right? Exactly. Act, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's true because otherwise people would panic and still be in a stress yeah. <laughs> to disrupt, 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 focus on disruption, disruption. Well, sometimes you don't need to disrupt because you're just the only player or... Yeah. So so who is saying disrupt or be disrupted, right? And why are they saying it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's just people selling stuff, right? I imagine selling the idea of disruption, right? Especially in big companies, I would think that's an innovation executive or innovation managers would sell this like be aware be aware we should disrupt give me budget of five million euros to (laughs) to come (laughs) up with the next thing and i would understand that the ceo would be scared and say okay here's go here you go shut up five not five million ten million do something (laughs) i will still make profits of billions of dollars it's the innovation industry exactly that's keeping this mantra alive Exactly. There's something a bit odd. Obviously, I've studied innovation at university level. And what it tries to do is actually create an industry out of developing innovations, right? The point that they make when they're trying to teach you innovation at university level is you have to have a sustainable way in order to develop innovations. You have to think differently. You know that it's about testing ideas rather than the best idea. You just keep testing an idea until it works. The idea is based on a set of hypotheses. And if that set of hypotheses don't work, then you have to change it. And so on and so on and so on and so on, right? Whereas when you're executing a known business plan, you know who your best customers are, you know what they want because you speak to them, and therefore the best idea usually does win. Exactly. Because it's informed. Yeah. When you're doing something new, it... (laughs) It's not the case. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So you have to find some way to make a handy format out of thinking about innovation. Much more difficult. And so, you know, I guess the idea of this, I suppose the wider point I'm making is the idea of disruptive innovation has given birth to an innovation industry. Didn't the innovation industry existed before this disruptive theory? Well, it was different because it was R&D, right? And R&D tended to focus on incremental innovations. How can we do a better way of doing what we're doing already? Well, that that's true. The disruptive theory definitely has helped the innovation industry. Yeah. Yeah. And every, I remember even when I worked at the Board of Innovation in Belgium as an innovation consultant, supporting senior uh, consultants in uh, in uh, workshops innovation workshops so what the and and in those workshops 
when we would start with teams from corporate companies, the first thing we would, the first idea we would give is, um, why are we here? Uh, that is because your manager and your executives has created a budget not to be disrupted, but to invest in, 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 uh, in innovation, disruptive innovations, to not be disrupted, uh, disrupted in a few years. Right. So I remember even going to uh, to a team uh, from the ING Bank, where we gave a workshop about business model canvas. And suddenly they were, right. I remember, um, sketching all business models, focusing on the same value proposition, basically, or right. basically sustaining innovation, improving the current value proposition. Yeah, done in a different way. <laughs> Yeah, so that was the innovation they were focusing on. I remember there was no one t thinking about disruptive innovation, not only in the bank we w where we give the workshop, but other companies also. It was all always sustaining innovation. What are we doing now? This are we doing now? Okay, so how can we improve that? <laughs> it's like a fundamental paradox, isn't it? You can't. You're so used to doing incremental innovation in a in a very specific domain that it's almost impossible to think outside of it. You're good at, at what you're doing, basically. And suddenly you have to think about doing something good at what you're not doing. <laughs> yeah. So how is that? So, so I'm an engineer. I'm good, really doing, really delivering good uh, engineering products or service or whatever it is. And suddenly I have to think about other non-consumers um, non who would probably come for my engineering skills well, what would that product or service look like <laughs> well you don't know right <laughs> exactly it's completely blank it's the red pill blue pill moment right exactly yeah you know how how do you make that breakthrough in order to be aware that the water you're swimming in is of a particular temperature right you know how do you how do you know that yeah, that's true. My experience of managing innovation within my own team is that everybody gets excited about doing exactly the same thing in a different way and then call, calling it disruptive. Right. I can remember one staff member who I inherited after a restructure. And every idea that this particular person presented was exactly the same as the idea that she'd just been working on before the restructure. Oh, wow. But just looked slightly different and had a like five times bigger budget wow <laughs> and i would be like you need to go back to the strategy we've just adopted and understand what the fundamental difference is be between what we were doing before and what we're trying to do now right and she just could not understand that <laughs> Yeah, it's the case with what we said. She was good at what she was doing. Why would you start thinking about something that you're not doing yet, but want to be good at to not get yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's difficult. Even to start thinking about that. Yeah. Let alone being aware yeah, of that. Yeah. Within the museum sector, right? There is the idea of best practice. Right. There is a right way to do things. Right. And the, the point of the strategy was to say, we're not doing those things anymore because they don't generate the return that we want, either in terms of the economics or in terms of the social impact or 
in terms of attracting the right people. Right. So therefore, you have to change your idea about what best practice means. Yeah. Otherwise, you just carry on doing the same thing. Yeah, of course. But the problem is the universities only ever teach this is best practice, right? <laughs> that is true. So you get generations of kids that come out of university, and the first thing you then have to reteach them is doesn't work like that. Yeah, that's true. That's a huge challenge within all sectors, I think. Yeah. People come started working for uh, after graduation and suddenly, okay, you're a manager, here you go, after a few years, and suddenly, guys, we have to think about something different because we're not profitable or we're making no social impact or low social impact. And you know what? It's not their fault. No, not at all. Because we're, we're taking, okay, you can do this job. Now from tomorrow, we want you to do a different job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you mean you don't get it? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, okay. Back to the article. I guess the, the bigger point that they're making is disruption is the lens through which you use your innovation efforts, right? So you're trying to see the business in a different way, the operation of the business in a different way. And that's really in a sort of business model way, right? You're saying here's a bunch of inputs and that produces a bunch of outputs. Those outputs create an idea of value for a particular range of customers. Right. I mean, that's broadly it. If you really want to change what you're producing for customers, you need to mess about with that formula. Change the inputs or the process, yeah. And that's that's what they're saying. Yeah, disruption is good for that because it's forcing you to understand how a different range of inputs, as you say, can produce a different range of outputs and a different idea of value. Yeah, that's true. And I, I really like that idea of using the business model as the way to do it because then you're not saying one business model is better than another. You're just saying this particular range of inputs creates a different range of outputs, you know, and, and you can compare and contrast those. Some of them will be disruptive, some of them won't be. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at it through... As a st if you look to the through it from from the value proposition to the new business model with new inputs, uh, then yeah, it definitely makes you think about completely about within the with it makes you look to the current market markets completely differently. Yeah. So so you're forced to think different, and even about new markets eventually. But it's the the what I'm triggered to is the. I've read, we have read this article now, and when we're not talking about it, now I'm becoming aware of what disruption is and how it could look like and what it means for me on a daily basis if I start thinking about disruptive innovation from a business point of view or a company, whatever it is. Right. But leaderships in other companies, managers, wh whoever, whomever it is, how are they aware about disruption theory and how do they consider that within their innovation strategies yeah that's a, that's a that's the question i'm triggered to well most people don't have an innovation strategy right yeah exactly their innovation strategy is what's new next year because 
they don't really understand what innovation is, never mind disruptive innovation. Well, I, I think it's also challenging for, for, for example, let's assume the leadership knows from a bank, the leadership, uh, the innovation executive knows that this is a disruption theory. Yes, we understand it. So let's make a, let's make a budget of 20 million euros, invest in innovation. All those layers beneath him, they should also be aware what disruption theory is. Otherwise, what would be the success rate? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's challenging. I mean, if people could just understand the difference between a sustaining innovation and a disruptive innovation, right? Exactly. If people could get the idea that doing business as usual is different to trying to create new businesses, it would go a long way. So an introduction class before you start uh, innovating. Well, almost. Like, welcome to this class. <laughs> You're going to innovate in a, f- uh, a few months. What is innovation? And they will answer. <laughs> and eventually, okay, be aware, this is innovation and this is well, disruptive this, this innovation. This is sort of weird paradox, right? Is that we, we, we want to hire the best people to do a particular job, right? So <laughs> you're an analyst. Yeah. Analysts have certain skills. Yeah. And the the when you go for your interview you know they test <laughs> the skills that you need to be analyst and you get the job or you don't right and then for innovation you say well you know those skills that we've just uh, employed you for they may not be relevant <laughs> <laughs> so so it's how do you reconcile those two parts of the business right and of course the answer is that if you're going to do innovation it has to have a uh, a different set of KPIs. It has to operate in the business differently. It has to be spun out so that it, it it's you know runs independently of the core business, so that they're not affecting each other. And and all too often, people just don't understand that. Leaders don't understand that, and and so they get lumped in. And of course, what always wins is the current business model because we need to make money, right? To create and pay people's salaries. <laughs> And it's currently making probably money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's that's the that's the t- paradox. That's the tension. Yeah, and I would understand that it's difficult for a company to to create such an awareness um, about disruption or 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 create such insights um, in all layers of the company. Yeah, 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 and that's why they keep uh, doing the same thing for years and yeah, years. Yeah, of course. Uh, before they're getting, getting disrupted. You know, th- they, they do make the point that most new products or services are neither completely sustainable or, you know, or disruptive. You know, technology itself is neutral. We make human decisions about how we apply that technology, right? That's the That's the point. Yeah. But they do say that when a challenger attempts to compete against the incumbent head-on, the incumbent will invest more of their resources to protect their market and the challenger will fail. So Uber has succeeded for a number of reasons. We're going back to Uber. So they, the, the taxi business is heavily regulated, right? You need a license. Right. In London, you had to do this thing called the knowledge. You had to, say, you had to show that you knew the streets of London, right? Basically, <laughs> before there was GPS. Right. There's no need for innovation. No. In that particular market, it's licensed. There's a quality control in, in terms that's built into the market or built into the licensing. Right. You know, so 
so Uber managed to go very quickly because they they had the technology to exist outside of that. The GPS enabled people to do that and enabled people the very low barrier of entry who were like, I'm fed up working for this terrible company. I'm going to go work for myself at Uber. Right. And then they also leveraged um, a freelance status, right? So we don't have to pay taxes for these people. You know, we don't have to keep the fleet going and so on and so on. So so Uber's growth was was facilitated by that and as well as the investment. But they could get a head start on the incumbents. But they've met, never managed to disrupt the incumbents because they were never on a disruptive trajectory. Yeah. All that happened was the incumbents came back to, well, we'll use that. We'll use that. If they can set up a business to do this, I can set up a business to do this. Exactly. It makes it convenience more. It gave more convenience to the taxi drivers. Yeah. 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 I mean, the another point they make is that the, the ideas about disruption theory have changed over time. Right. So what they were trying to, to, to understand was a correlation. Incumbents outperformed entrance at sustaining innovations, but underperformed at disruptive innovation. He was trying to find out why that actually was. Right. Um, and, and he said, look, well, that's fine, but I have actually developed a theory since then. And he's saying that a company's propensity towards strategic change is perfectly affected profoundly affected by customers who provide the resources the firms need to survive. So you're actually locked into this relationship with customers. And that's what's very, very difficult to actually get out of. Yeah. Because it makes perfect sense, right? And when, you, when you're asking your most profitable customers what they want, and they're going to pay for it, you're going to do that. Right. But at the same time, what happens is that the cognitive functions – within the workforce think that sustaining innovations are the only kind of innovations. So we all think that sustaining innovations are the dominant way of doing innovation. Yeah, exactly. Just do it better than, bit better than it was before. So uh, the Henry Ford quote that he didn't actually say was, but has been attributed to him is that, you know, if, if he'd asked his customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. <laughs> exactly. And the point is that that's, that was that way of thinking. And he came and said, no, we, there's another way to think about providing transport. Yeah. And that's why incumbents often find it difficult to respond to disruptive innovations because they're pre-programmed to think about their best customers and what their best customers want. I mean, and that's largely been my, I largely work in areas which are heavily regulated, either in the sort of public sector or charity sector, and that's how they think. Yeah, I agree with that. I, 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 I think it's also human, because if I would have a business and, and the consumers, I don't know, if I would start a restaurant, an Afghan restaurant with Afghan food, I suddenly, I would be continuously be busy Eventually, people would in other cities would ask, "We need this also in other cities." I would expand in other cities, and before I know it, I'm ten years on a row. I'm still keeping, uh, still uh, expanding my my business. 
in those 10 years, would I even start thinking about <laughs> disruptive, uh, <laughs> how Afghan food is changed? Yeah, no, <laughs> because I'm still getting paid. We are still growing. So the focus is keep growing, keep growing, keep growing and keep yeah. the current customers yeah. happy. I would understand it's human that you would not think that's important to think about uh, disruption. Eventually, if you're disrupted, the business going lower, then you would panic and say, why? And then I would understand you start innovating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think it's important to understand, to be aware, to have this lens of innovation, <laughs> disruptive innovation. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and they say that's it's human nature that drives our attitudes towards uh, innovation. So that it, it's not that disruptors all disrupt they they're actually quite happy to exist in the bottom of the market they don't all try and move upstream like you were saying with a restaurant they're happy where they are and they can see income coming in it works they're busy that's all they need and that's why you know there are actually very few disruptors you know it takes a particular commitment for somebody to go, do you know what? I'm going to take Afghan food mainstream yeah. and I'm going to turn it into a franchise and it means we have to change how we serve it and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. Right? Because we, you know, we want to disrupt. So there is something fundamental about human nature. And, uh, and he's saying, you know, by, fo- by understanding that we shift away from correlative data, you know, that, Incumbents are good at sustaining innovations, not very good at disruptive innovations, to causal data, which is we can understand the effect of X on Y. Yeah, that's true. You know, so, I mean, the question is, well, why do some people think disruptively and some don't? I mean, (laughs) how do you even try and answer that? Well, I think when people suddenly... Uh, make less money. <laughs> okay, we need to disrupt, uh, start thinking about innovation, and, and then maybe they start about thinking uh, why an, uh, a startup has disrupted their business. Maybe they're going to start thinking about disruption. Yeah, so there's an imminent need. Yeah, there's a need. Otherwise, if it's no need, <laughs> it's human nature to think, yeah, I'm making money, I have my customers, everybody's happy, they are happy, I'm happy, why should I think about disruption? Suddenly they're being disrupted, I don't have money, my customers are happy, but they're going to, no, not happy, they're going towards someone else, <laughs> so I need to start about innovation, thinking about innovation. Well, uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, human need is one thing you're going to have to respond to. Those. <laughs> exactly. I- I mean, generally, I find that the the people who are most open to thinking differently aren't find it difficult to work in very um, narrow environments. You know, the environment itself doesn't allow them. Yeah, exactly. Any freedom, you know. I can relate to that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, if a company is completely focused on delivering, making their current customers happy, making profits, and suddenly some manager or an executive is going to is going to ask ask like um we should talk about disruption innovation. 
And I would, I would, I would understand why the executive would say like, no, we don't need it. We'll make money, a lot of money. Yeah. Why would you even start thinking about that? Well, there is another similar company who's being disrupted in the U.S. Still, we are in the Netherlands. Nobody's doing that. We don't need it. Bye bye. Yeah, no, it's going. It's definitely yeah. going to be difficult for that person or team. I mean, again, it all. We've said it before, but it always sort of comes down to the human in the equation, right? <laughs> It's not businesses aren't disruptive, the humans that drive them are, yeah, or not, as the case may be, you know, yeah, that is true. Uh, but I do think there's some, you know, there is interesting data about the number of migrants who end up um, running their own companies, right? Yeah, and and I've always thought that's because as a migrant, you just don't fit in, it's hard to fit in. So therefore, you just like, oh, I'll just make it myself. Well, I must say that, that there is some truth in what you say from my experience within my environment, whether it's from my family who lives in the Netherlands and uh, Germany, UK, internationally, where uh, I have contact, I'm, I'm in contact with them. And they all say they have, they, they all have difficulties to fit in companies. Right. And many of them uh, uh, who have jobs now in companies still say they are, have difficulties to fit in. Many who doesn't have jobs in companies, they say, because I'm not fitting in those companies and an environment, I'm going to do it myself, to have my own business and have uh, and, and be my own boss and earn my own money. Yeah. And and besides uh, besides my own family in the Turkish environment or Moroccan environment, which I am con- in contact with, they all say the same thing. Like we don't fit in, so that I'm going to do it myself. Then nobody has to be my boss. They, they, they use the reason like I can't work with someone else or I can't work under a boss. But but actually, I agree with you. It's basically that they they don't feel part of where they work. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's the same narrow environment which where their different mindset doesn't fit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my experience is similar, but slightly different. I mean, I, I, my family were migrants to the UK. I suppose the, the difference is that, you know, the color of my skin <laughs> is different to the color of your skin, right? So in terms yeah. of visible diversity, uh, I, I haven't suffered from the same, I, I suspect, racist assumptions. But in terms of cognitive uh, diversity i've really struggled because I, I and this again goes back to working in museums right the people that generally work in museums are are the established middle classes they have a very clear view about what culture is and what its purpose is in terms of sharing a common set of values right about our past and how we interpret the past and I would always come in and say, but that doesn't apply to me. Like, that's not my past. That's not my history. I want something different out of this. And they'd be like, well, that's the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I would be like, but that's that's the point. right? If you want to diversify your customer base within the museum, you can't preach middle-class values. You have to find some other utility for it. 
Otherwise, it's social control. Well, I agree with that. And what you're saying, exactly what you're saying, if you want to diversify your customer base, you have to diversify your thinking. Right. Basically, if you go diversify your customer, diversify your business model, diversify your management, your whatever, 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 and eventually it comes down to the, diversif- the diversifying your thinking, not being narrow, but starting being open to other types of thinking because your customers are now <laughs> different, changed. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I worked on a project which was about future thinking within the institution I was working at at the time. And we wanted a, um, you know, a research company basically to do customer research. Right. And um, I wanted them to go into East London and find out what you know, a more diverse population wanted from a cultural experience. Right. And I put this to various research companies and they all sort of ummed and nod. <laughs> and then one said, one said, well, we just don't do that. I was like, what do you mean you don't do it? You're on your research company. It said, well, we only go to museums and do that. Wow. So I'm like, you're at, you're going to museums and you're asking people who already go to museums why they go to museums. It's like, it's not what we need to know. That's not a good business model. <laughs> <laughs> That's bad. You know, it's like you want me to spend, I don't know, whatever, whatever it was, a thousand pounds a day, you know, to have somebody. Yeah, Alex, you were wrong. It's like I can get an intern <laughs> to do that. <laughs> you were wrong, Alex. Your intern can't do that. You need a research company to do that. <laughs> That's funny. That's really funny. Uh, but it was, it was the way they sort of looked at me as if I was wrong. Yeah, I rem- <laughs> that's funny because I, I remember when I started in my company and and they involved me because i had some innovation experience they involved me in uh in an innovation sessions and suddenly they all were busy how and with sustaining innovation how can we serve our customer better and we have don't have a lot of customers it's telecom providers it's like a few handful and so so i was the only one thinking asking like guys we have not a lot of customers why are we <laughs> yeah we need to diversify our customer base <laughs> trying to improve our current offerings current service why are we not thinking about other services yeah exactly <laughs> and they asked me literally so what do you think about that wise i said we have an expertise in telecoms infrastructure internet infrastructure why are we not selling this even internationally because there are a lot of upcoming economies in africa and asia maybe yeah. Even like Southern Europe. Southern or Europe, right? yes. I mean, <laughs> why are we not thinking about selling the infrastructure, the knowledge itself? That's that's money. They looked at me as if they were seeing, I don't know, a ghost or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, the more I studied about innovation and the more we've talked about it, it it's like it's the it's a cognitive function. Yeah. Thinking innovatively. It is a is a underdeveloped cognitive function, and the frameworks help us to do that, right? You know, business model canvases and so on and so on. There are many great tools that help us to do that, but until you have that red pill, red pill, blue pill moment, you won't get the most out of those tools. True. Yeah, and I wish we could. I wish we could bottle that and sell it. Because, because we would um, 
uh, we would be a very wealthy <laughs> people. We would disrupt the disruption uh, innovation. <laughs> yeah, that's really what it comes down to. And and obviously there's a lot of factors that play into that, right, about your upbringing and your family and your schooling, and, you know, your wider education, your work experience, and so on and so on. Yeah. But it still feels like we're missing something. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I agree. Especially if all those factors are at play uh, with each individual within a company. Even if a senior leadership has a particular view about the innovation and starts making a program of five years, it suddenly makes uh, the whole company move towards a direction and after five years someone else comes and uh, makes the company move in another direction in innovation yeah. suddenly you have i don't know maybe almost one generation that's thinking differently but will stay for 20 years working at the company <laughs> yeah. there it goes the innovation <laughs> and the sustainability of the company well that is true so it's definitely i mean that is true yeah it's a human thing and it's not easy <laughs> yeah well we're not going to solve that today either but uh, <laughs> we're getting off the paper I mean, they, they finally, they talk about a few anomalies, right? They, um, uh, uh, and how the theory is developed. So first of all, they thought it was only low end stuff, right? But, but then they added the, the new market stuff, new market disruptions. And that largely came from smartphones, right? right. Smartphones did not disrupt phones, <laughs> mobile phones. They disrupted the PC market. Exactly. Because essentially what you're doing on your phone is is um, the same functions cheaper that you would do on, on your, your PC, yeah. right? They also talk about some industries being more resistant to disruption. So, you know, if you're talking about the public sector or charities or things that you are heavily regulated, particular licenses monopolies obviously going to be more resistant to change so he wrote books about um christensen wrote books about um how to disrupt higher education how to disrupt healthcare, right which are both heavily uh, regulated and i mean i don't know about healthcare. i work in healthcare at the moment i can tell you it's not being disrupted from where i right. am but but higher education is being disrupted. So things like um, edX, for example, right. you know, we've both used edX. And for me, yeah, I'm not sitting in lectures. In fact, I don't have high, high uh, I don't have lectures that I'm sitting at. But actually, for me, it doesn't matter it, because it's the thinking that goes afterwards exactly. that, that is actually of greater benefit. Yeah. So the stimulus for that, it can come from anywhere. It could be reading, it could be watching something, whatever. Yeah. But it doesn't come from a lecturer standing in front of a of a class. And in fact, it's more convenient to do it that way. I agree completely with that. And and you don't have to work in groups of people who don't do any work. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so, which is both of our experience. Yes, indeed. <laughs> So he's saying, well, th those things are sort of happening slowly, but you know, but surely. And as the technology capability increases, that will happen more. Yeah. And I've had the similar thing about museums, right? I think the idea of a museum, right? You go and you look at physical objects, right? Right, and that's it. That's basically it. And you need an expert to guide you. And I've often thought. 
the disruption for museums will come when we have enough um, technological solutions where you can stick on a headset and you can physically handle something that looks like the representation, you know, um, and you can get the same sensation, the same experience through a set of virtual reality goggles. Oh, nice. Then you don't have to visit the museum, right? right? You're just visiting the virtual museum. Oh, that's really nice. And so it's kind of the same. Yeah. that. Well, and if you add to that the, the, the how do you say that? The benefits one can have to experience um, a a art piece from the perspective of the yeah. of the artist, yeah. But then yeah. it could definitely be interesting for the non-visitors. Like, hey, yeah, are you? I don't know. Are you interested in? Uh, I don't know the how how a painter processed the death of its fiance or or, or mother yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Look at this painting and understand the story and here are the questions yeah. you can start with yeah 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 i would yeah. even do that while i'm not interested now yeah, going exactly. to the museum. And, uh, <laughs> yeah and um you know you could sell as a subscription right or a seasonal pass exactly. or you know whatever it is yeah. right you know you know I, and i've often thought that's probably the way forward that's a good one yeah the um they also say that there's no exceptions to the disruption rule so people often talk about Tesla being um, disruptive. Uh, and he says, well, they're not because they started the sort of at the high end. They started producing very high-end vehicles. Right. And now they're coming down market. I mean, I, I um, so the first Teslas, I think, were about $70,000. Right. And obviously now they're becoming a bit cheaper. A few weeks ago, I had a friend who, who visited, who runs his own business and has a Tesla. Right. And he took me out for a spin in it. Oh my God, what an awesome vehicle. Right. You hear nothing, <laughs> first of all? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, much more comfortable. Uh, and obviously, everything is driven by software, right? right? And, and so on and so on. But he says, look, the, the, the benefit is, yeah, it costs more to buy it up front or however it's leased he's he's like but it costs me like five pounds a week to you know to drive all around the country wow yeah that's true and there was a guy pulling out of uh, i mean i live in old warehouse district right and there's a lot of sort of inner courtyards people keep the cars in the inner courtyards there was a guy who came out in a ferrari right and he's like this car will go faster than a ferrari not 60 wow and I was like, really? <laughs> He's like, yeah, watch this. <laughs> and he did that? <laughs> and he, yeah. And we went uphill. Wow. <laughs> Their power was absolutely incredible. That's nice. And it was like a fairground ride. <laughs> I mean, when he put the brakes on, like my entire body flung forward. <laughs> And um, he's like, oh, my wife, she won't drive. It's like, it's, it's like she feels like she can't control it because it's so different to, you know, driving a, a, a normal type of vehicle. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is that Tesla started, you know, up market and then came lower. Right. They haven't disrupted a market yet. In fact, the opposite is going to be true, that people will come in with lower end vehicles. Right that are just good enough as an electronic vehicle, and then they will end up disrupting Tesla. Yeah. 
you know, which may or may not be why Tesla never has enough money and why people are saying Apple should just buy Tesla. Yeah, that's true. I mean, their final conclusion is like, we know a lot about innovation at the mm-hmm. moment. We know a lot about disruption, but we will never know everything. Yeah. It's just too complex. You know, it's too dynamic. The world is too dynamic. And yeah, uh, and exactly like I said, the world is too dynamic, too busy to think about, within, to think within the business process, to think about disruption. It's yeah. like, yeah. but those that do might be onto something. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Can't disagree with that. Yeah. I mean, so how are you going to view disruption from now on? Is it something you're going to carry forward or, you know? Well, yes. Why? Because every thought about my, every startup idea I have, every innovation idea I have, I probably will try to see if, if I'm in the sustaining innovation or the disruptive innovation environment. Right. So, so in that way I would probably think about and use the disruption theory. It's a must read for people who are busy with innovation. It is a must read. If you can understand disruption, you will understand innovation. I think that's the that's the key point. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Innovation Book Club. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you can do three things to help us grow our audience. First of all, please leave us a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps to feed the algorithm. Second, share this episode with your friends and colleagues if you think they would benefit. And finally, if you'd like to listen to all future episodes of the Innovation Book Club as soon as they're available, then please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, take care and we'll be back soon.